G'day and welcome to the Fly Fisher Podcast. Since 1967, we've been spreading the bug of fly fishing. Join us as we celebrate the fun of fly fishing and chat with characters that enjoy it as much as we do. Whether you're just starting out or have some experience, we hope our ego-free commentary helps demystify fly fishing and inspires you to visit new places and try new techniques. Today, we're joined by Jeff Pierce. Jeff is the International Sales Manager for Scientific Anglers, and we're super excited to have him here today, all the way from America. It's rare that we get an international fly fishing visitor of such quality, and we're pumped to find out more about him and Scientific Anglers during this episode. Jeff, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. It is great to see you again. It has been some time, you know, since you've uh, graced us with your presence here in Australia. COVID obviously caused a, a bit of a hiccup there in your normal schedule, I guess, being international sales manager. Yeah, for sure. It was a quiet two years as far as travel went. <laughs> that must have been nice in a way, though, I guess, like a bit more time with family and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it definitely was nice to be home. And of course, my boys are older now, so they're not running around the house as toddlers but uh you get a bit stir crazy when you're not getting on an airplane and going someplace once in a while so yeah and did it affect the way that you did business through that period a fair a fair bit a lot of zoom calls and yeah a lot of uh teams video messages uh tons of whatsapp um video sessions and that kind of stuff so it was it was all very doable but nothing beats the you know face-to-face time with uh with customers and, and consumers and stuff so that part was was hard not to be in the middle of it yeah absolutely um mate we might as well start i guess with a bit of an introduction and just find out a bit more about you um you've been in the industry a a very long time where 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 did it start and when so it started when i was uh 10 years old i started deckhanding on charter boats um on lake ontario so trout and salmon trolling typically um when my buddies were mowing neighbors' lawns, I was out on a sport fishing boat running downriggers and netting fish and cleaning salmon and um, getting paid really well under the table. So I had a really nice bike and cool toys. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought it would, might have been the opposite, you know, a bit of cheap labor on the boat, you know, be taken advantage of maybe. Well, I developed, a, <laughs> thankfully, I developed a pretty good reputation among the captains. So the, the guys that uh, maybe had a deckhand that wasn't working, if I was off that day, they'd, they'd want me working for them because they knew I'd, I was really good in the back of the boat produce, to produce fish. The main guy that I'd worked for, he was really good on the running the boat side. But he's like, if you're not here, we're not going to catch any fish. So, yeah. um, so that, that part of it was fun. And then from there, I, as I was going to college and high school and that, I um, worked for a, a fishing tackle retailer. Uh, it's a mass merchant now, Dick's Sporting Goods in the States. They've got probably 400 stores now. But at the time, they only had Just like... Just Yeah, they only had like seven. Wow. And we did over a million dollars out of our tackle department. Um, it was just amazing. We could order all of our custom stuff in for our fisheries, Western New York. There was a lot of good stuff to fish for. Yeah. And, and that's American dollars for those. American ones. dollars, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Pretty substantial turnover <laughs> for a business like that, I would have thought. Yeah, for just the tackle. I mean, that mm. didn't include what the rest of the store did, so... Um, that part was fun and doing that I got to know the sales reps that that worked for the different companies Um, also got to know the distributors that we bought some product from so from there I went to work for a distributor that sold hunting and fishing stuff we had 35 salesmen on the road I did kind of the inside stuff and and uh, that was fun learned a lot and over that period of time knew more about the the repping side of the business and um, ended up going to work for a rep agency and I handled a whole bunch of stuff, uh, different hunting and fishing, that kind of stuff, camping outdoor for a while. And having done that for three or four years, 
uh, got to know some of the factories better. And finally, Mustad Hook Company at one point came to me and said, hey, we're looking to add a new position. And the job's yours if you want it, because I repped the company at the time. So wow. So they'd brought me on board, and I worked for Mustad for 15 years, traveled all over the world, handled uh, half of North America, but then started with uh, doing a lot more with product portfolio management, development of rigs and stuff, not just for U.S. market, but around the world. So spent a fair bit of time in China, Philippines, um, Singapore, got to go to some cool places, chase some neat fish, that kind of stuff. So um, got to meet some amazing people around the world and see some fishing that I definitely wouldn't have seen if I was a plumber back in <laughs> Western New York. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, Mustard doing a bit of repping there, but what about your fly fishing? Were you fly fishing whilst working for Mustard? Did that become a passion sort of after, after that, or was it something that you, you had and I, developed a very early on? Uh, right from when I was 10 years old. So when, I lived in New York. We moved to Florida for a bit. We moved back to New York and uh, met a guy much older than me, and he came, kind of became my mentor. My dad traveled a lot for work, so he didn't fish. Nobody hunted and fished in the family, um, and he was this guy was just diehard hunting, fishing crazy, so he got me into hunting, got me into fishing. So I started out spin fishing and fly fishing at the same time, taught me how to tie flies. So I've been doing the fly thing as long as I've done the conventional thing. So it's been, we're 40... 42, 43 years into being a fly angler. So yeah, I still do the conventional thing too. I'm not one of these guys that thinks you have to go to confessional if you touch a spinning rod. There's times of the year where it's just, it doesn't really, it's not really conducive to catching fish on fly for what we're chasing. But if I can catch the fish on a fly, I'd much rather do it that way. So yeah, for sure. Um, so after mustard, is that when you ended up at Scientific Anglers or? Yep. Yeah. I um, parted ways with uh, Mustad and then uh, a few months later, um, I started with SA Brad Beefus, who is our current president. Uh, at the time, he was, I had known him for years because when I was working for Mustad, my sales rep for the Western US or Western Canada was also scientific angler. So I'd known Brad Beefus for quite a while. And that connection certainly helped when I was looking to make a move somewhere else. And uh, so I've been with SA for January. It'll be nine years I've been with SA. So I've been fishing SA lines. I think my first fly line ever was an Ultra 4 or Ultra 3. Yep. And then I had, a I think, a couple old Peach Cortland 333s. But other than that, I've been fishing SA essentially forever. So a lot more fly lines now and tapers than there were back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd imagine, yeah, when you started, getting your head around the range was probably a little bit easier back then than it is now. Yeah, you basically had a double taper, a uh, weight forward line, and a sinker, and that was that was about <laughs> it. Now there's, oh, what sinker do you want? There's there's so many in the sonar range, and there's just so many tapers. Yeah. And the technology's come a long way as well, so. It has, yeah. And let's just, I guess, talk about the range that scientific anglers have today, because uh, there really is a line for every application. There is. Um, yeah. No matter how many, I mean, if you look at our website now or a catalog or go into a retailer like you guys that has a really good selection, there's still somebody coming to us with, hey, I got an idea. There's this taper I've been thinking about. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. Do you see how many tapers we have? I bet we have something right now. Well, yeah, you do, but I think there's something that might be a little better for this little tiny niche something. Yeah. So, But we're, we used to, when I first started with SA, sometimes we'd have five or six new lines a year. It's not the case now. I mean, we've got such an expansive range. We're not looking to add lines just for the sake of adding. If there is truly a, oh, this is something that we didn't really think about, okay, this is something that we should come to market with, then, you know, we'll roll that out. But it's not, hey, we need eight new lines this year because we want to have new lines. It's, 
it needs to be thought out and there needs to be a reason for that product to come out. So you're not just pushing new product for the sake of pushing new product. You're actually doing it because there's a need and a want for it. Yeah. And from a retailer standpoint, you got a lot of lines on the wall. So it's like, okay, now what do you have that's new? And if it's something that's just, it's new to be new, but it's not going to do something, then it's much harder for you to justify bringing that product in. It's going to be harder to sell it. You need to be able to sell it. Mm. You need to be able to explain to your customer why they need this for whatever fishing they're doing. So it's important if you come out with something new that there's a legit reason and not just a, we need to sell more lines. So, yeah. And you're um, getting back to you a bit and the travel that you've done. Obviously, you, you probably had a, a bit more insight than most people. Your job has had you traveling around with a fishing rod in hand quite often. And so you've been exposed to the different fisheries and techniques that are, uh, are happening globally. Yep. Um, you know, uh, tell us a bit more about those sorts of experiences that you've had on the water. Like, um, uh, like the tarpon fishing for you, is, was that a, a big thing for you at home? Uh, yeah, for sure. So I think one of the advantages I have when I was in college, I got my associate's degree in ecology, environmental technology, and then I went and got my bachelor's in biology with an emphasis in fisheries. So I ran into one of my professors a few years ago, and he told me the one year we were doing a, uh, a lab class in Belize or in uh, the Bahamas for three weeks. And he said he thought I was fishing too much. And so when I ran into him, he's like, so what are you doing these days? And I telling him, and I said, you remember that time? He goes, yeah, I remember that time I told you I thought you were fishing too much. He goes, I guess you were fishing just about the right amount. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's interesting going around the world. And like, if you just look at brown trout, I mean, they're on pretty much every continent. I've been to every continent to fish except for Antarctica. I probably won't get there, I imagine, at any point. But it's interesting to see the different techniques. I mean, there's, there's hares ear nymphs everywhere. There's pheasant tails everywhere. But the techniques that are used um, in different markets, just sometimes it's subtle, sometimes not so much. Um, it, but, and just the number of species that you can chase. I mean, I'm over a hundred and probably 60 species on fly at this point, over almost 250 on conventional and fly yeah. combined. Um, but it's interesting to, I love going into a market, seeing, okay, what, what's the species they're chasing. If I'm going to fish there, then a lot of times I'm looking at what the forage is. Cause if I'm going to tie some flies, I'm tying flies based on that forage, like saltwater stuff. What are the fish that the fish are eating? The tarpon are eating. Um, and then just getting immersed in what the guide, what that particular guide is looking for in conditions and application, as opposed to a guy that's chasing the same species on the other side of the world. Yeah. And it's very interesting to see the, the differences there. So yeah. it sounds to me like you're a guy that geeks out way more on the fishing than the gear in a way. Like it, 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 it the gear is, is an accessory to get you to that fish, isn't it? It's, yeah, but I, I, if you don't have the right gear, like, I mean, I, I geek out pretty heavy on flies. I don't open books up a lot and say, oh, I need to tie this pattern. It's like I said, I'll, oh, I'm going to go chase queenfish. Okay, well, in this part of, I'm going to be an Xmouth. What's the main forage? So I'm going to try and tie stuff that pretty closely matches that, yeah. which means I might never use that particular <laughs> fly again because it's not often that you're throwing pilot fish looking flies at yellowfin that are feeding on jellyfish masses in the gulf of mexico so maybe you tie those and you use them for three days and it's over with but yeah um but the gear is 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 important if that's not good then yeah when you find the fish and you make the right presentation it might not it might not work out real well for you i don't like fish refusing anything <laughs> <laughs> like permit often do or or uh um spotted grunter in south africa those fish are worse than a permit i think but, really yeah. yeah and so there are fish that even when you do everything right they might still say 
Fuck you. Yep, yep. <laughs> you look at your buddy who's been doing it for 20 years, and he goes, it looked perfect. Yeah. And the fish just, you're watching them wake off the flat. I mean, the cast was great. The fly was great. How they can put their peck fins out and stop one half of a millimeter from a fly where they push a wave past the fly. They were coming at it so hot and not eat it. It's incredible, eh? Yeah, yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty frustrating, but that's what gets you doing it. I mean, that's why some people get so eaten up with permit that they end up divorced and homeless because <laughs> they spend all their money chasing them. They, just, they have to do it one more time. Yeah. Yeah. Fly fisherman's peril. They call that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I did a bit of Googling on you, uh, b- bef- you know, just in, in the last sort of 24 hours. And what's this silver King award that you got um, by the Federation of fly fishers? Tell us a bit about that. Oh yeah. That was, that was quite a surprise. So at the time, I was going to their international conclaves every year. Um, one of the things that I always put a focus on was the saltwater side. It was, to me, from being an angler, it was frustrating to go to the Texas coast. And there were certainly some guys fly fishing in the Laguna Madre, which is the water in between mainland Texas and the island. But nobody went outside that. And then there's some other places around the world and in the States, too, where nobody's fly fishing. And it was just like you have an amazing fly fisher here venice louisiana is a great example a lot of guys are fishing redfish now you see a lot of stuff on social there is phenomenal near shore offshore fishing there for on fly mm. and there just wasn't a lot of folks doing it so a lot of the places i would go you'd meet a guide okay here's what the fishing is and just try and figure out what they're chasing and how they could do it on fly because there's certainly customers that would want to catch them on fly and just spent quite a bit of time trying to promote the saltwater side of the sport and getting more people to understand that you don't need to be an expert. Um, and it's a lot of fun to catch. There are species that the conventional guys will run over a school of fish and not mess with. False albacore would be one of them. Yep. King mackerel, um, blackfin tuna in some markets, they consider them a trash fish. They are the greatest thing ever to throw a fly at. I mean, a king mackerel, you're setting the hook on a fish that ate a crease fly and he's 25 feet in the air. Yeah, wow. And it's just, it's crazy. So I spent a fair bit of time just trying to promote that saltwater side of the sport and trying to get more people into it. And they called me the one year before the conclave and said, are you coming this year? I said, yeah, I'm coming. Well, we've got an award to give you. And I'm like, you have the right phone. I think you've got a wrong number here. And it was this Silver King Award. And it's, the neat thing about this award is, or that award is it's, it's not an award they give out. They feel they need to get out every year. They only give it out when they feel it's somebody's, you know, worthy. And it was for the just promotion of the the saltwater side of fly fishing and trying to get people into the sport yeah um so it was a big surprise but yeah it was a huge honor i was rather embarrassing to stand up there and get it because i <laughs> i really didn't feel that i was i was deserving And when you look at past people that had won it it's it's kind of a who's who and i i definitely don't feel that i'm even close to being should be in that camp of people that have have won that but yeah it was that it was may exciting. be part of the reason that you were awarded it mate <laughs> very modest <laughs> Um, yeah, no, that's a sensational story. And I guess, was it more about the promoting the diversity of saltwater fly fishing rather than and getting people to look maybe further than tarpon and bonefish? Was that a, a part of it as well? Or? That, that's definitely part of it. I mean, a, a good portion of it was, you know, that these fish that you guys are catching conventionally can be caught on fly here, but also that, that it's, there's other species mm. that people aren't necessarily chasing conventionally. Um, but it was more so utilizing the resource. You have an amazing resource here that you're not utilizing. And what a lot of the guys on the saltwater side that conventionally fished learned was they could fill charters, fill days booked on the guides, um, 
and get more people to come down and to do something that they considered much easier because they're not having to do rigging. They're basically getting the guy in front of it, and then it's up to the, the guy on the bow of the boat to catch that fish. They have to give a little bit of guidance, um, but it's it's literally making money off fish they would run over. Yeah, amazing. And it, yeah. it, it was eye-opening for them to, to think that I didn't know I could sell a charter for false albacore, as you guys call them, Mac Tuna. Yeah. Um, they just it boggled their minds because most of their customers didn't want to mess with them. They didn't realize the Harker's Island thing, which is famous in the States, that boats, guide boats are running into each other trying to catch them on fly. You can do it in parts of the world where you'll never see another boat. Yeah. You'll be all by yourself. Yeah. So and that's right. You know, some of these species are just such good targets on a fly rod, and it's not all dependent on size, is it? No, no, not. And it's it's almost like carp is getting more and more popular around the world in fly, like this year. For 23, we actually have a sweatshirt that's got a carp on the back. Ten years ago, somebody might have hit you with a tomato. Yeah, yeah, in the yeah. Back of the head Someone would lose that. their job at Sandy Big Angler for even, you know, coming yeah. up with the idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's stuff getting more respect. I mean, one of the things that, that we pushed, still pushing, um, people go all over the world to fish GTs. They're amazing fish, no question. I've got a chance to fish them in, in Kenya. Massive GTs there. But in the Gulf of Mexico and other parts of the world, there's a, a Jack Creval or Yellowtail Jack. We should call him a golf trevally. I've caught 40-pound GTs. I've caught 38, 40-pound Jack Reval. They mm. fight exactly the same. They are insanely aggressive. But one's called the GT, so it's cooler. <laughs> and the guys from Europe that have come to fish with me in the golf that mm. have done the Seychelles in that, they're coming to the golf now because they also have redfish in that, but it's a less expensive trip for them. And the fish fight every bit as hard, and they're not you know, banging into guys and, and kind of fighting for, for a spot to fish. Yeah. Um, and they're just amazed that they didn't realize this existed. And they're like, why is nobody doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm having to spend 12 grand to go to Farquaad to fish for six days and 12 grand here. I could fish for four months. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So, yeah. So it, it, you know, this is a bit of a, a sign of what's happening both in the industry and with fly fishers in general, they are pushing the envelope and starting to look at fisheries that are, always existed but now doing it with a fly rod um tell us give us a bit of insight as to what's happening in america right now with 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 those sorts of species and and, and carp obviously being a big one in, the, in that space as well yeah carp's definitely continuing to grow and you see maybe seven eight years ago there was only a few guys that were quote brave enough to take a picture of them holding a carp with a fly rod um i mean i've been chasing them for a long time um more and more people are certainly chasing them on fly now the thing with carp is they're literally everywhere i don't know if there's any place in the world you can go that there aren't that there's freshwater that there aren't carp mm. so they're available to everybody um some places they're more exclusive than others you know some places in the uk you got to pay a lot of money to fish carp in the states they're everywhere and it's easy to find a place to fish them so that's for some people that's kind of their first experience that maybe they're catching bluegills or small bass or something on a fly rod and a carp is something that, I mean, holy cow, you, you stick a, a three or four kilo, which is small carp for us, on a fly, and you've got your hands full. I mean, they fight so hard. So mm. it's uh, it's a species that definitely deserves more respect than it gets. It's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield fish of the, um, I think, of, or as I travel around the world, that's the one fish that just doesn't get it. But like I mentioned, the, the Jack Creval, that's another one that gets absolutely no respect from anybody. Yeah. But it's an amazing fish, and pretty easy for people that are land-based that don't have a boat don't have a big skill level you can literally be walking a beach with your family while they're picking up shells and all of a sudden a blitz blows up in front of you and just don't cast 
and hook somebody that's shell um, hunting behind you, but you can immediately get into it, and it's amazing. You hook a fish, and you fight it for 20 minutes. Mm. So, uh, you know, let's talking about scientific angler and, and these sorts of techniques or species that people might all of a sudden start chasing, uh, do scientific anglers typically release a line before it's popular? So say a carp-specific fly line, which I don't think you guys do specifically. You've got the, I guess the Titan would be one of the ones that... Yeah, the Anadro. There's a, there's the a Anadro, few. Yeah. We, we try not to... One thing we've learned over the years is, although we know it is effective, like we do have a trout line, uh, but we try not to pigeonhole lines. So if you have a line and you call it, say, carp line, it's great. You'll sell it for carp, but that line's also a good smallmouth line. It's a line that you could be using for your Australian salmon or carawais, um and the customer won't buy it. If mm. it says bass, but it's a great pike line, well, why are you giving me this line? I'm, I'm fishing for this species. Well, no, it's really good. For, yeah, but it says this. Yeah. So we, we try not to pigeonhole with the exception of trout because everybody's fishing trout all over the world. But we try and kind of be on the leading edge of, of taper design and that. But there's only so much you can do there. So it's 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 tough. It's it, it, Look, I, I think to me it, it baffles me because there's a there is always – I think you guys are ahead of the curve always. Like there's always a line there for that new application. Like it's, and no matter how niche it may seem there and like GTs, for instance, now, uh, sure. There's a a market for GTs, but it's, there's not, it's not a huge volume. I wouldn't have thought like how many people are traveling to the Seychelles? Like how many anglers can they handle in the Seychelles any week? It might be a dozen. So like we're not talking a huge volume of people yet. There is a line there specifically designed for them, you know, and with, yep. a, with a strong core and all the rest of it. So I think, you know, you guys should probably pat yourself on the back for, for doing what I think is uh, a product well before there's any real demand there. You know, it doesn't take much demand for you guys to go, yep, right, we're in, you know. Yeah, if there's a – typically it will be a, a, a guide or a, a group of retailers in a certain area that will go, hey, this fishery is developing – this line you have is is good, but it could be better if we did X, Y. So then it's a matter of sitting down with our um, Josh Jenkins, our R&D manager, working on a new taper. Might be sometimes nails it the first time. Sometimes it's two or three iterations before you get the one that's just right. Um, and then, yeah, you've got a, a new line that we have so many lines that we make now. It's it's pretty hard if somebody like walks into the shop here and says, I'm going here to do this. We aren't necessarily going to have a line that we don't have a queenfish line, but we've got multiple floaters multiple sinkers whether it's fast sink or intermediates that are going to fit the bill for that and it's just a matter of the consumer telling you what weight rod okay what's their casting skill level if uh if they're only going to be cast in 25 30 feet then you don't need about worry about them aerializing 70 feet of line in the air but there's pretty much a taper that we currently have for everything yeah but again that being said with as many as we have there's stuff we're always working on infinity Salt would be an example. Some of the permit guys came to us and said, hey, we would love a new line that is a little different than this line that would do this. And we... That was the answer. Yeah. yeah. And we talked about, do we call it a permit line? Do we not call it a permit line? And, and you know, that one we decided not to call the permit line because we know the permit guys are going to buy them because they are. But it's also a really good line for other species. Um, yeah. That, how, how hard is that product development stuff? So someone comes to you with an idea, a guide that's well-respected and knows his stuff. Um, it, you know, to get it to the point of a, of a sample being produced and then 
spitting it out and putting it on the water in real application and getting some feedback on it. What what sort of, I guess, time frame are we talking? And, and, you know, like not an actual cost, but I'd imagine it's costly doing that. Yeah, machine time is especially, you know, once COVID hit, everybody went fishing because they weren't allowed to go to work for a while, no matter where you were in the world. So um, while everybody was out, demand for fly lines went just absolutely through the roof and we had a hard time keeping up with it. So every minute of machine time is incredibly valuable to us because we, we don't have idle machines. You know, back in the day, we would have certain times of the year where it was slower. That's not the case anymore. So um, so we have to be very careful about shutting a die down where we could be building lines for orders that we have in-house and balance that because we know we need to some, you know, Josh Jenkins needs to work on a new taper, but it can happen quickly. So if somebody comes to him with an idea of this is what I need, sometimes it's a drawing on a napkin, literally. <laughs> um, sometimes it's this beautiful Excel spreadsheet that shows like every six inches what the diameter should be. If that's the case, um, Josh can get it into our system. And that's one of the cool parts about being at SA. We can be like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's try this. In 20 minutes, the line is in your hand. And you're out front on our casting pond and standing back. And he's like, you know, we need to move the weight up a little bit forward. And I'm going to change this. And they goes in, he makes a change. And 25, 30 minutes later, there's another line for us to cast. And it's really cool to, to watch that process. Sometimes it's boom. The first iteration is perfect. And it's like done. It's baked. Other times with more complex, like we do some pretty complex uh, fast sinking stuff for the European salmon market. Might be five, six samples before we absolutely nail it and get it get it perfect then it's like okay it's baked but yeah. i'd imagine that what jeff pierce likes in a fly line might be different to what josh likes in a fly line is there a, a panel of you that sort of cast the lines and you know are obviously very good casters and can tell the intricacies in in fly line design to give you that feedback and and fine-tune the product yeah there's definitely it's like uh the princess and the pea you know this bed's too soft this bed's too hard and um it uh there is certainly some subjective subjective part of it. Um, our former R and D manager Bruce Richards, he loves his true to weight lines. I mean, he's he's not a fan of the overweighted like Titan stuff. They they have their place, and he understands that. But a really good caster will love a line with a super long head that they can aerialize 70, 80 feet of line and make a beautiful cast very accurately to a brown trout that's in a still water. And Bruce knows a little bit about <laughs> casting. He knows. Yes, he does. <laughs> Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it, I mean, the, the main thing is if a, a retailer comes to us or a pro comes to us with an idea, then Josh will get that line built out, cast it, say, okay, I think this is what you're looking for, but it's ultimately the, the biggest put is going to be on the, on the person that came to us on, this is what I'm looking for. Yep. That's exactly what I wanted, or this isn't quite there. And we might pick that. I might pick that line up and go, wow, it just feels, just doesn't quite feel right to me. But I'm not in that situation doing that pitch kicker type of fishing. So certainly the guy that does it every day is the guy that knows what's needed for that market. But if you have four people that fish for trout and you give them the same line or you give them two or three different tapers, three of the four guys might pick three different tapers. So it really depends on their style, their casting ability, the rod they're fishing because the action of the rod makes a big difference. So there is a lot of subjectiveness to it. I mean, I could catch a trout on a, on a, a BWT. Yeah. I'd need a really long leader because it's going to hit the water pretty hard. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely subjective. And that's kind of the whole point of the, the BYOR events is a chance for 
guys to come and uh, anglers to come and cast different lines and say, oh, well, here's the three tapers that would work for your trout fishing. And then they're like, wow, this one feels really good on my rod. I really like how this feels. I can cast good with it. Okay, well, there you go. Then you take that one. The other two work. We'll do the same thing. But if that one feels the best for you, then that's the one you should go with. Yeah, so. and I guess that's what I'm alluding to. You know that every everybody's idea of, of uh, or, or what going what is going to work optimally for them and through their fly rod can be quite different between people. So, um, yeah, that's sure. you know why these sorts of events where you've got well here today we've got a hundred fly lines on display for people to put through their own rods or any of the rods in the shop, and um, you know. It, it, it is interesting seeing, and you can look at a caster and go, oh, well, that one, that line is obviously working for them. You know, they're throwing yep. such nice loops and getting such good distance or whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, what uh, like after you've created uh, a few um, sample products, do you then spit those out to respected guides or uh, people within your pro staff to then test them on the water? <laughs> yeah, we, we definitely have... Uh, um Josh will run a number of samples and then it might only be one or two guides. Yeah. It might be eight or nine guys that like, if it's a new tarpon line, that's going to need to go out to, we've got a, a very close circle of people in all over the world that we trust that we can hand a line to that isn't going to talk about it. It's not going to be on social <laughs> <laughs> six months before the lines. Available. They're discreet, discreet testing. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's important to get the lines in the hands of, of, of the key guys. Like I said, it might only be one or two, but it could be, 10 or 12, like Infinity Salt, there was a number of guys because it wasn't just a keys thing. We wanted to make sure that some of the other markets around the world where the guys were really keen, some of the guides get a line to them, see what they think of it. Maybe they're maybe they're not super in love with the taper. They're like, okay, yep, I definitely see a need for this. Um, but yeah, so once Josh nails down what it what we think it needs to be, a bunch of samplers going to be samplers are going to be made. They'll go out, get that feedback, and then if maybe we do need to make another tweak, it's pretty easy for us to do that and then the line could be available to the public in six months could be a year it depends on the cycle that the time of year we generally launch products october 1st um, but we have done some mid-year introductions when we feel something's really important um, and it wasn't ready in time for that october one then we might roll it out in february or something so yeah uh with uh covid and uh, october one that timing was that just to do with the trade show more than anything else or yeah our i mean our our year starts the first of october so that's just that's traditionally when it's been and we we the trade show moves around but usually it's it's always been october 1st is that's when new pricing starts that's when officially new products become available so that's when we've always rolled them out obviously if that new product is most important in april then okay we can sell it in now but it's not really going to get used till then um, but if we know a product is important in February, but it wasn't ready to roll out at the show, then we'll try and crunch it through and get it ready so that it's ready in February when that market needs that line so that we're not waiting another full year and maybe a competitor to roll out with something that's pretty close to it and kind of beat us to the punch with something that we're sitting on. Yeah, so absolutely. Th there is a bit of urgency at times to, to get something out there. So. Yeah, cool. So Taper Design's obviously a, a, a very big part of the overall program with creating a great line. But let's talk a little bit more about <laughs> the tech that goes into Scientific Anglers lines and is unique to Scientific Anglers. Um, AST, AST+. Plus, um, I want to start at the bottom, though. So... Air cell and then into your frequency range. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but air cell doesn't feature AST. Correct. And so once you get into that frequency uh, price range or family of lines, if you like, uh, that's where the, the AST comes into the, yep. the picture. Uh, what is AST? 
in your so AST stands for advanced slickness technology and what it is is an additive that we put into the PVC it's important to note that when we build a line we don't build a line and then overcoat it with something that's slick because while a line might be really slick out of the box if you've some of the lines out there, you'll fish them three, four times, and that line's nowhere near as slick as it was when it came out of the box. That's because it was overcoated with something that was slick, which wears off. So our AST and AST Plus are impregnated into the PVC. So from the core and the center of the fly line all the way to the surface, that slickness is built in. So with AST, that is a solid material that's mixed in the PVC. So after you fish the line for a while, if you're lucky enough to get out 8, 10, 12 times a year, you notice the line's not feeling quite as slick, then you just need to clean it. With AST, because it's a solid material, you'll use our cleaning pad, which is roughly like 2,000 grit sandpaper kind of, and you'll run your line through it. And what you'll notice is on that cleaning pad, you'll see a little bit of the color of the PVC. What you've done now is you've exposed some more AST, so that line kind of comes back to life. It's nice and slick as like when you first got it out of the box. Yeah. And that's what you're going to find on frequency and on mastery will be that AST and then when you hop up into our Amplitude series, that's where you get our, our AST+. Plus. Yeah. That is a liquid-based slickness, and that is constantly migrating within the PVC, so it's always replenishing itself. You don't have to do anything with a cleaning pad to, to get more of it to come out. It's important to clean your line because a dirty line is not going to cast as well. So with an AST+, Plus line, we say, you know, just make sure you keep it clean. It should feel as slick as when it came out of the box for a year, two years, depends on how much you fish. If you fish 100 days a year, and like in New Zealand, there's a lot of pumice, mm. that's really hard on the lines, especially when you're stepping on them <laughs> and dragging them over the pumice when you're chasing a fish. So it's it's dependent on you know where the angler is. But you should get two, three seasons anyway out of a, of a line as long as you take good care of it. And that AST+, plus, again, because it's a liquid, it's it's replenishing itself. So you're not having to actively use that cleaning pad to, to get that to kind of and presumably you're getting better performance out of the AST Plus as well because it is pushing that. What do you refer, is it a lubrication or what, what, what is the technical term for that, whatever it's excreting? Yeah, it's an it's, it's agent that makes the PVC slicker. So the, the thing that we measure, we're not able to measure internally. We have to pay a lot of money for an outside lab and it's a coefficient of friction. And basically what that is, is they're putting a given weight on top of the line and then pulling on it and... Uh, sophisticated equipment tells them how many, how much force it takes to pull on that. So that's that's the way for us to measure our lines, our competitors' lines. When you talk about how slick a line is, is that coefficient of friction, um, and the AST plus is keeping that essentially at that same out of the box level. After you've fished it a, a season and a half, it's still doing that same thing for you. And because of that, it's helping to keep the PVC flexible that means you're not going to have the issues with it starting to crack and delaminate. And that's where you're getting that longevity. I mean, the one thing we, we hang our hat on is, is the quality. So we're constantly doing durability testing. Um, to keep us honest, we have an outside uh, lab that also does the same durability testing. So, you know, the last round of testing we did, we had competitors lines that delaminated as few as 2,500 cycles. And that's being pulled through the tip top of a fly rod with a 50 gram weight. So it basically, it, it simulates casting like mm -hmm. hauling. Um, the AST plus lines are 80,000 plus cycles through a fly rod before we're starting to see wear on them. And so, you, so if you translate that through to how many seasons you might get out of the line or fishing days, uh, do you know what that equates out to in fishing days? Uh, it, well, it see, it, it kind of depends because you've got 
some of the backcountry brown trout stuff that you'll do in New Zealand, you might only you're walking for an hour to cast once. Yeah, there's one fish a, a <laughs> yeah. kilometer, yeah. so you're not doing near as much casting as somebody that's nymphing a pool and just constantly a double haul, getting it across, doing a drift, making a cast. So that's mm. it's more more stress on the line doing that. What I can tell you is we have um, guides that were using competitors' lines that were getting having to use three trout lines a season on a guide rod. Mm. They're going into their third season with uh, NAST Plus and Amplitude line and, and not having to even think about changing it. Yeah. And these guys are fishing 100-plus days on the year. Depends on where they are um, yeah. in the world. Some guys are guiding 200-plus days a year. But Yeah, amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's probably at this point worth mentioning, uh, you know, scientific anglers value the environment and they're constantly trying to innovate and do things to create a more sustainable product. Um, durability is just such a big part of that story, isn't it? Yeah. If So in that example I gave, you figure that guy, if he's got three rods, he's buying nine lines a year. That's nine lines that are going in a landfill. And if, if that can be only three lines, one on each rod for three years, that's a pretty significant amount of product that's not going into the, the landfill. Huge. Yeah, so yeah. From that aspect, it's big, but we're doing other things as well. You know, our our, our new um, um, leader and tippet series, we got hooked up with a manufacturer who had uh, a patent on some biodegradable clear windows. It's it's plant based, so our absolute leader and tippet comes in a package that. If you're one of these, we call them in the states a jack wagon that just throws their trash, uh, that thing will hit the ground. And once it gets wet, um, it starts breaking down. And in a matter of a few months, it's gone. Nice. Um, foil packaging is beautiful. And it, it looks great on the wall hanging in the shop. But if you drop it or, you know, it's windy, it occasionally it is in some places, and it gets out of your hand, that foil pack will be there 100 years from now. The, the um, packaging that we're doing for our leader and tip, it, it'll be gone in a few months. Yeah. It just totally disappears. <laughs> Unreal. And yeah, it, like, you know, the, yeah, the scientific angler, I, I got to admit, I had to taste the forbidden fruit once and I tried a competitor's fly rod, a fly line. And, uh, out, as you say, out of the pack, I was like, Oh shit, this is actually, this is pretty good. You know, like yeah. this is slick, unbelievable. Yep. And then after a week's fishing, I thought, what's going on here? This thing's like raspy through the guides. <laughs> and, you know, so I, I've sort of seen that firsthand just how good that AST and AST plus technology is in, in, in creating a line that gives you high performance for a long period of time. But, um, yeah, the, the topical coating of, of, of lubrication or flotation, whatever, you, you know, and keeping that, that plastic restored, it, it is – is that the standard with the rest of the industry? Is what you're doing unique to scientific anglers? Uh, well, we'd like to think that the the materials we're using um, the, in the AST and AST Plus is, I mean, we don't know everybody else's formulas, but based on our testing, we feel we're, we're ahead of everybody else. Um, we, we're not going to say that out of the box that uh, an amplitude line is going to feel slicker than anybody else's because there's some other stuff like you said you take it out put it on the rod and you're like holy cow but mm. but tell me what that feels like four days into a trip it's it's going to be different so um, we're we spend a fair bit of time and money looking at material science I mean that's really important tapers are easy I mean it's a matter of setting the machine up and running it and then making adjustments but if the material science behind it isn't good you can have a great taper but if you're not making a good quality fly line then 
the guy's going to have a really good trip the first two or three days he fishes, but after that, it's going to start to go downhill, and then they're having a bad experience, and and that's certainly not what we want. We don't, none of us get a chance to fish as much as we'd like to, so it's important when a guy gets, finally gets a chance to get out and get on the water that they have a, a good experience. So bloody oath, um, and you know, another part of the the coating of your lines is obviously the textured coatings, which has been a big part of the scientific anglers program for a long time now. Um, maybe just explain, uh, well. I got a real a, a question, you know. From looking at on the box, you see uh, floating texture and and shooting texture. What's the difference between a shooting texture and a floating texture? So floating texture. If you go back to our, the old shark skin lines back in the day when texturing first came out, they were very aggressively textured. Um, were a little rough on the fingers at times. Made a little bit of noise in the guides, but the floating texture we currently have is much more subdued than the original texturing was. But it is the more aggressive of the two texturings that we offer. But the floating texture is only on the first three, four feet of the line. And that is because that more aggressive texturing tends to allow that part of the line to float higher than if it was smooth. Um, and then our shooting texture is like a golf ball dimple. So the rest of the line, if you look at an amplitude line, you've got floating texture on the front three to four feet. And then you have the shooting texture on the rest of the line with the exception of where the back of the head is. There's a little smooth spot. So you can kind of feel that even if you're, if so, if it's, low light or you're not paying attention you can tell where the back of the head is you can see color change as well uh, but the shooting texture that golf ball dimple texture um, the advantage to texturing as a whole is it's less friction uh, the rod the line's not touching the guides it's not touching the rod as much as it would so your shooting is much better uh, your flotation is better and if you think of it like the wrinkles on your knuckle on your finger that texturing allows the pvc to flex more so it makes the PVC more durable and lasts longer than if it was not textured. So okay. if you're, if you're, I do a lot of double hauling for some of the fish we chase, we're having to make long casts. You will notice a pretty significant difference with a textured line compared to a smooth line. Yeah. Uh, so when you, um, I guess, are discussing this technology with your average Joe um, and they complain about the noise of casting a textured fly line, how do you typically respond? Uh, I mean, again, that's kind of subjective. It, some people, if, if they fished the original shark skin, then the first thing we tell them is, well, you need to cast one of these because it's much more subdued texturing. There's still some noise in the guides, but nothing like it was. But, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. To me, it's, it's kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Okay, maybe it makes a little bit of noise, but you're going to be able to cast farther. And there's a lot of pluses. There's way more pluses than minuses. If somebody fishes on the conventional side and they use braid, Braid makes as much noise in the guides, so I mean, I don't, I don't hear it. It's to me, I'm kind of tone deaf to it now. But um, we do get some folks. Some of the Norwegians are like noise, quote noise in nature. They don't like the sound. Um, they think it's doing something terrible to the rod. We promise it's not sawing through the guides or anything like that. But it's just, it's to each his own. If if they don't like it, then they can hop down to the amplitude smooth, still have that AST plus, and get all those benefits from that. Um, but yeah, it's there. There's still a few people that that will comment on the on the uh, texturing, the noise that it makes, but it's it's nothing like it was back in the in the day when texturing first came out. So, so you're finding a, a better longevity out of an AST plus textured line than an AST plus amplitude smooth line. Correct. Yep. Yep. Because yep, you you get a little bit more flexibility. The PVC is able to to bend more. Yep. So unreal. Um, and you know, let's. Uh, 
there is a, another question I've got just on flotation on the tip of fly lines. Um, it seems to be a, a bit of an issue, at, you know, across the board. But even on a scientific angler line, you quite often do notice a little bit of tip sag uh, and just a, a slight sinking of the tip itself. Um, do you recommend using any kind of floating agent on the tip, like a loon payette paste or anything like that? You can do that. The challenge to adding any of those things is you're just going to need to make sure you clean the line because that that type of overcoat, um, it attracts all kinds of dirt. So you'll find that that section of line you applied it to will get dirtier quicker, which will then, even though it's a flotation that you're putting on it, it will tend to make it want to sink as it's, if you're collecting fishing, as it's collecting and, stuff. Yeah. 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 So um, the Biggest thing we see typically if somebody's complaining about a tip sinking is they're using a full tapered fluorocarbon leader and fluorocarbon is heavy compared to nylon. So it will pull the tip of a fly line down. Um, so our recommendation typically is a nylon leader. And then if you need to use fluorocarbon, then, you know, use your fluorocarbon tip it. But more often than not, if somebody's contacts us and they're, they're frustrated because the tip sinking, they're using a, a full tapered fluorocarbon leader, which that, because of the weight of that heavy butt section of flora will want to will want to pull the tip down yeah um i was sort of interested to see that even on your sinking lines you're using texturing now yep so the is that just in the running line or how does that work textured it depends on the line uh, but the one of the things we found uh again the norwegians in their noise in nature they didn't like texturing as we were building some very fast sink lines for early season Atlantic salmon in the Scandinavian market, we built these lines textured and we built them smooth and we let them, they fished them for a season and they came back to us and they order everything textured because what happens is that, and don't ask me the, the hydrodynamics of it. I, I don't have a degree in that, but it, uh, it allows the wa the line to come out of the water cleaner. So it's less resistance to pull a textured line, a sinking line from the water than it is to pull a smooth line from the water. Right. So even though they're not a fan of the noise um, or that little bit of noise anyway, um, they're buying all of their sinking lines are fully textured. They can see the benefit. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're, they're willing to look past that little bit of noise because they see a significant yeah. advantage in trying to pull a full sink seven or sink eight head out of the water to make that next cast yeah norwegians can compromise in the end who knew <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um so uh, you know let's just talk a bit about the industry in the u.s a little bit um you know the it, it's booming fly fishing over there what what happened through covid over there well a lot i mean we got closed down by our governor we were considered non-essential so they shut us down for about two months um so everybody was sitting at home so many companies, so many people sitting at home and they were, some areas had restrictions on travel, but most in the States did not. Thankfully, Canada, you were reserved to certain areas. And if you were a guy that lived in the city and you, the, the fishing was in the other zone, you were, you were, you were kind of screwed. But uh, most people went out fishing mm. um, and sales were just crazy. So not only the, the folks that were fishing, but a lot of people picked up fly fishing. Um, so we saw our, Orvis, as, a, as um, our parent company, they sell a lot of outfits, and we just saw outfit sales soar because we're, we're building the lines for the outfits, and that just exploded, all these new people in the market. Then it's a matter of seeing how many are going to retain. Since COVID's, for the most part, over, restrictions are up, we're still seeing a pretty good retention rate on a lot of the people that picked up fly fishing. 
Um, and those that started out with a basic outfit are now coming in and spending 500 to $1,200 on a new rod because they've decided that this is something I want to pursue and whether they're fishing trout or, or not. But just during that, that shutdown period, it seemed like everyone yeah. was going out fishing. And we noticed, too, I mean, there was more people on the water. Mm. So it was, uh, you know, you hate to say on the back of, uh, um, of, of what COVID was, but it, it got so many more people into the sport that that weren't in it and those that were in it got a lot more time to do it because they weren't allowed to go to work so it was it's pretty crazy what we've seen now is that that has plateaued and it's slowed down a little bit now which is kind of good it's giving us a chance to catch our breath because it was it was pretty crazy in production just trying to keep up with demand yeah so the you know the fly fishing as a resource or rivers as a resource um is there much concern over there with just the, the, the amount of fly fishing traffic and fishing traffic on these rivers now? Like how, how many fly fishers can a water sustain? Yeah, there, there's certainly parts of the country where I saw some pictures this past summer of some of the rivers in Montana where there'd be a, a boat launch and there'd be like 35 boats sitting waiting to go down the river. And if you're boat 34... <laughs> I'm not sure what the chance of you catching a fish on a dry fly is going to be. Um, I don't think there's, at least I haven't run into too many situations or conversations about where it's really damaging the fishery. It's more so, I think the, uh, the impact has been on the angler and that, uh, experience level, the value of the experience that, oh man, we went to X place today and I never see anybody there, but there was three other guys fishing there today. So I think a little bit of a frustration level for the anglers that have been out there and just maybe fishing water that they don't expect to see the number of people in the traffic on. And that's forcing them to kind of move out a little bit. And I know just in my personal fishing, some of the areas I fished close to home where it was more urban, a lot more people. But if I was willing to get in my truck and drive two and a half hours, I was back to not seeing anybody. So you had to do a bit more exploring, but there was definitely um, more of walking into a spot and going, oh, what the hell? There's somebody here. <laughs> I have 10 years of fishing this spot. I've never seen anybody fishing here. Yeah. So that was a bit more of a challenge, but I haven't really seen. We've got pretty strong regulations in, in the States for the most part. Um, I haven't seen where that number of anglers has, has damaged a fishery as, it, as, more, as much as it's damaged maybe the quality of the experience because there's so many more people out there and now you got to kind of hunt for spots. Yeah. And I think the vast majority of people out there are doing the right thing, aren't they? They're catch and release. They're looking after the fish before they release them. They kind of, they're in tune and they know that, you know, they shouldn't take it for granted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the case with most and you, and you, you know, you do some to try and educate some, um, the, the social media thing is challenging. Sometimes some folks, are pretty hard on fish to get that picture, to be able to post a picture to Instagram or what have you. Um, so that's more of an education thing um, and trying to get people to understand that in the middle of the summer when the water's 26, 28 Celsius, you don't want to be musky fishing and putting that fish in the net and putting it on the boat, deck of the boat to get a weight in that. That fish, you shouldn't be fishing for them at that time of year when it's that warm. But if you catch one, you know, you need to, same thing with trout, if that water's really warm, you probably shouldn't be fishing the river if it's, I don't know the conversion, but 70 in the States Fahrenheit, you shouldn't be chasing trout. So that's more of an education thing because there were a lot of new people that came into the sport that don't necessarily know that, that they shouldn't be trout fishing when the water's like grossly warm that you can, mm. you can wet weight in it. Yeah. Um, so it's just a bit of an educational thing there, I think. But 
Yeah. But for the most part, people are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. If, if they know what the right thing is. And then it's just a matter of educating people to make sure they, they do know what's what they need to be doing and not be doing. To me, it, you know, looking at the U.S. fly market, which is obviously so much bigger than the Aussie fly market or, you know, the rest of the globe's fly fishing market, um, the education thing seems to have really uh, driven some businesses like scientific anglers and like a bunch of retailers over there too. Like education is has been uh, the, the secret source behind the successful fly fishing businesses. Um, yeah. Talk to us a bit about that, like what you're seeing uh, with with your dealer base over there, and and because it's pretty exciting, I would have thought just to see uh, how in touch and and necessary the dealer is today for today's fly fishers. Yeah, I, I think one thing that we see is we have not enough of them, but we we have some customers that the amount of content that they film, uh, whether it's tying knots, which knot to use for different flies, how to build a leader, how to um, make a good presentation to a fish in, in really still water, spooky water, that kind of thing. The dealers that are putting a lot of content out there are the dealers that are buying a lot of product from us because they're driving a tremendous amount of, they're, they're so much traffic to their site to watch the videos, which is then driving back to their shop to buy stuff. Um, and those dealers that are, are, are doing that are, are tremendously successful. But it's a it's a time commitment. I mean, oh, just yeah. to, it's not easy. That content creation stuff is is hard. Shooting the videos and and that kind of stuff is tough enough. But to sit down and take the time to edit. I mean, a, a good friend of mine in New Zealand, um, Alex Trippin on Trout, is one of them. The the time he spends shooting the video, but then the time that is spent in the editing suite to to produce a video that people want to watch. I mean, I've seen some videos out there that people should have their cameras taken away. Yeah, and never be given back to them. Yeah. Um, so to create that good content's important, but it's it's like I was talking to a uh, one of your customers earlier. When you walk up to that wall, there's a ninety. If there was nobody there to help him, there's a ninety percent chance they're going to grab the long wrong line. And I'm not talking brand. I'm talking taper. Yeah. If they don't have somebody to guide them on, oh, okay, you're doing this. Then these are your options, and they could end up with a really bad experience because they're trying to dry fly fish with a line that's made for chucking big Murray cod flies. So. Um, that education part of it is important. And when you've just brought this massive number of new anglers into the sport, if you don't have something that they can sit down and, and learn and absorb all that, then it's going to be really tough for them. A prime example, we had a, a guy that came to, young guy that came to work at SA in production. He had fished, but not really. He'd never fly fished. But when he started working for scientific anglers, he felt well, like, I need to learn this. I think he watched every YouTube video like seven times, every single YouTube video that had to do with fly casting and probably half of the ones that had to do with fly tying. And I tried to take him under my wing a bit. And the days that when I was in country in town, I would get him out fishing on my boat. Boat's called the double haul. Um, and I was, I was impressed with his casting skill being a newbie, but he did better. It was amazing the level of casting that he got to by watching videos and no hands-on instruction from anybody. And then was tying flies and bringing me flies and showing them to me. And you'd give a little critique, you know, try doing this and was tying beautiful flies. And this was all just from being like a sponge and soaking up everything on YouTube that he could. Yeah. And allowed him develop to develop into somebody who I would have thought had been fly fishing for 10 years, who'd been fly fishing for seven months. Yeah. So... I know in our business here, the um, our employees, our casuals, the younger guys, the guys that are 
at that growth curve in their fly fishing where they are just getting into it. Uh, like this gentleman, what, what was his name? Jerry. Jerry, yep. like Jerry. You know, that, that seeing that for someone that's been in the industry for so long and been doing it for so long, it's refreshing, isn't it? You're kind of almost living uh, vicariously through them, I reckon. Like you can remember that first day that you got into fly fishing and just how exciting it all was, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And honestly, having somebody like that in my boat and getting them on a big fish is is so much more rewarding than me being out by myself and catching five of those fish. So yeah, I love to get people out in the boat. I've got a couple other people from the office that, uh, that don't have a boat and try and get them out when I can. And it's so much fun to watch them hook a big fish and they are absolutely flipping out and yeah. it doesn't even need to be a big fish. It could be a small fish, but they're just so excited and just to see the passion and how excited they are about it. And I mean, I just, I, I live for that kind of thing. And to see somebody that got into the sport and that's having, such a great time doing it and you know they're going to continue and their excitement is going to be contagious to other friends they have and they might draw some more in because we certainly need some more young folks in fly fishing the the demographic depending on where you are it's pretty old in some places Um, so it's important to get young people in and it's hard i've got two boys 21 and 23 but you know the last few years it's it's pretty tough to pull kids away from online video games and stuff like that to get them to do the outside stuff so yeah, it's it's not easy. So as we get those kids in, it's exciting to to watch and watch them learn and develop. And it is, yeah, no, for sure, mate. Um, so you know, the other I guess question I've got for you, getting back into the industry a little bit, you know, your um, obviously scientific anglers HQ in the US, um, and then you've got uh, wholesalers that are scattered around the rest of the world. How do you see the role of the wholesaler in today's modern retailing landscape it's uh it's it's very important i i would say especially so on the ous the outside the u.s side outside of north america side of the business we've got a lot of really good retailers that, that buy direct from us in the states um the minimums aren't huge so a reasonably small shop can can buy directly from us and get and has that pipeline to get information from us and for us to work with them but a dealer in central or southern Argentina or Uruguay doesn't have that resource. So to have somebody um, like Andrew at, at, at uh, Mayfly here yeah. in Australia, he has been selling SA longer than most of our reps have. I would say he probably knows more about fly lines than, than pretty much every rep that works for us because he's been in it for so long. He's also a fly angler and, and a passionate angler and a very good caster in that. So it's really important to have, I wish I had more Andrews in other parts of the world. I've got some other good distributors for sure, South Africa and um, Argentina, Chile, Japan. Uh, but some of the smaller markets, to get a distributor online that knows the product and can be that resource because it's going to be very different. Don't necessarily speak the language. I'm not so good at to, yeah. <laughs> at, at most other languages. I, I, I can get by a little bit. But um, to have that resource regionally that can speak the talk of that local fishery is is so important and then a lot of these smaller dealers in third world countries are not certainly not large enough to buy direct so it's very important that they have somebody that they can pull from and they're typically doing what they can to promote the sport because the more people they can get fly fishing in that market which means they're educating the consumers they're taking on they're passionate about a conservation project to whether it's to save the taman or or uh yellow fish or something like that it's helping the resource and it's just helping the sport in general around the world. So the, the, the distributors play a really important role. 
Yeah, for sure. So it's not just about getting the stock into pay, into the shop's hands. It's a, it's a bigger picture than that for the wholesaler. For sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one thing to have it hang on your wall, but if if it's not selling, then that, that's not helping anybody. It's not helping you, and it's important for the consumer to kind of know what they're looking for to come in and, and pull that product off the wall. And the more people we have that are fly fishing, then the better it's going to be for everybody. So if, if people aren't fly fishing, then there's nobody out there watching the resource either. That's a real challenging thing. So if there's nobody on the river, maybe you don't know that this pipe is leaking something that's killing fish because there's nobody there. Yeah. But that guy that's fishing the river, that angler that's fishing the river might go, Hey, there's green stuff coming out of that pipe. We should Mm. probably tell somebody. Or they're about to log a complete valley in a river that you love. Yeah. 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 You're clear cutting what? Yeah. There's still a lot of that that goes on, sadly. Um, but yeah, the you know this this trip, you, you you're obviously here um, promoting scientific anglers and uh, you know and the, and the fly line specifically. What advice have you got for someone that's buying a new fly line? Uh, the biggest thing I think is to uh, don't just kind of blindly walk into a shop and and you really need to do your research online. Um, on, online meaning on the web. <laughs> You're on the line, online. <laughs> uh, it, it, you kind of need to know sort of what you're, what what type of fishing you're doing. If you walk into a shop and you kind of don't have those answers, then it's tough for the staff not to help you. But if you if you walk into a shop and say, I only fish dry flies and I fish trout. Mm. No, know what line weight you've got as well is handy. Bit of information for us. That is important. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, like I said, it, it's it's way easier to buy the wrong line than it is the right line. And again, I'm talking taper and the characteristics of the line, not so much the brand of the line. Um, but if, if you don't buy the right line, then you might not fly fish along because you were like, I can't cast. This is hard. I'm not catching fish. So it's really important that you kind of have your ducks in a row when you walk into that, that good retailer that has the staff there that can walk you through that whole process of, okay, here's your options. And like today we've got a bunch of lines here, but I know you guys have some demo lines and to get somebody to get a chance to cast something and say, oh, okay, this 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 feels nice. And especially when you're talking the prices of what some of the premium fly lines are now, you're a lot more willing to to pay that price for a line that you know is going to hopefully last two, three, four seasons, but also that it feels good on the rod that you have and you like the feel of the taper and you know, you're more willing to, to pull the trigger on that. But it's important to know what you need and then to be able to convey that concisely to the dealer so that they can walk you through what your options are. Because if you just walk into, especially some of the bigger shops that the mass merchants that don't have people that know the product, you're more likely than not going to walk out of there with something that's that's not going to be what you need. Yeah, not every store has the, the the staff that can spend the time with the customer to you know take them out and have a cast and, and that kind of thing. And that's really what def- differentiates a specialist fly shop to your, your big box retailers like, like Dick's Sporting Goods. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And and I mean, we have a the consumers in the states have a bit of an advantage because they can call an eight hundred number and talk to our customer service department. And when I'm in the office, you you hear those those calls, and you're walking somebody through the website. And okay, we'll go to this line and take a look at this. And so look at this taper. This taper does this. And by looking at this, this is you know why it does what it does. So the consumers around the world can send us an email through the website, and we get a lot. And I will help and as well as other folks in the office with some of that, especially the foreign stuff usually goes to me, but yeah, there's, if you're ever can't find the answer, there's always somebody that can, that can help. So there's, for sure. there's a lot to ask and a lot to know. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and what a terrific opportunity, you know, to have you here today with with around a hundred scientific anglers fly lines that people can just cast through their rods. Um, you know, we're trying to, I guess, make an Aussie of you too. We've got the traditional Australian sausage sizzle downstairs. Yeah. Um, we've also, I've picked up some some biscuits. I've got Monte Carlos, uh, some iced vovos. And some shortbread and cream for you down there as well, mate. And um, I'm happy to make you a nice coffee on our on our coffee machine down there to wash it all down. But um, you know, it, I you know, it, it's just so good that I guess a bloke like you is willing to travel from such a a, a, a long way away just to to get around the dealers. Like, is that being in touch with the dealers and the consumer? Is that something that that you and scientific anglers value quite greatly. You, you find that getting in touch with them at the grassroots is, is something that is necessary. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say some are less excited about 15 or 17 hour nonstop flights, but <laughs> I've been doing it for so long. I mean, I'm still not a fan of, you know, the long flights, but it is what it is. But I'm, I am much more comfortable and I would much rather be at a shop talking with the folks in the shop, the consumers, um, going to a trout club and, and doing a presentation there and then just getting feedback on what's working, what's not. And I think being in tune at that grassroots level is really what sets you apart and allows you to maybe see a new trend or something that might be coming that uh, we need to take a look at this. This is something that, that's going to be huge. And maybe it's developing here, but you look at like Euronymphing. I mean, that's everywhere now. But mm. for a while, it, you weren't seeing it in a lot of markets. Now it's absolutely everywhere. But I think being in tune with the retailers and the consumers in in every market that you're able to is it just it's that much better it is isn't it and you know i know in here we get asked the same question a hundred times you know and uh we've had staff that have worked here and then gone on to become guides scotty xanthalakis and kyle jones that's you guys um but i know that what they learnt in the retail space and the, the volume of questions and, and the thirst for knowledge that, that was coming through the door every day, it's made them better guides as a result. Do you yep. think uh, for you, you know, having cut your teeth working on a shop floor, that kind of prepared you and made, maybe made you better at what you do today? Yeah, I, th I think all those experiences, whether it was being a guide and, you know, customers barking at you. And I've never understood the guide that barks at the customers, but they pay the bills. But <laughs> um, all those different experiences at every level definitely helps um, to absorb that info. There is nothing that will get you more trained up for and knowing your product than diving into a consumer show where like Somerset, New Jersey, where maybe five or 6,000 people oh, yeah, are going to come through the, the doors. And when I started with SA, I knew, I knew fly lines. I didn't know every SA taper, certainly, but I told our president at the time, Brad, I'm like, throw me into the fire. I mean, send me to, even though there were U.S. consumer shows, send me into a couple of those shows because I want to be able to be with the guys that have answered that same question a thousand times. It just allows you to absorb, and, you, and before you know it, you know the taper length or the length of every head of every fly line we have because you're answering so many of those questions. So Yeah, sink uh, or swim. Every, every new staff member at Scientific Angler should have to do that, shouldn't they? Just be thrown in the deep end. Oh, yeah. It's, it's entertaining to kind of sit back and watch. And then that inevitably that, that spay question comes up on rod length and head. And it's like deer in the headlights. Yeah, but yeah. Pass. Yeah, yeah. But it, I, I, it's great. I mean, some people love the retail aspect of it. Some despise it. But I mean, I love getting out with the consumers and with the, the folks that work in the shops and doing a presentation at the 
Sydney fly rotters or whatever and, and just learning about their fisheries and, and what needs they have that maybe we're not addressing and also getting those stories of, hey, I used to use X line, I switched to your you know, XYZ line and oh my God, I mean, I didn't realize that I was that good of a caster and yeah. it's helped me catch more fish and we, you know, everybody loves those, those stories, but. Oh yeah. It's nice to get a pat on the back every now and then, isn't it? For sure. <laughs> and we're okay with the, you know, slap across the face once in a while. We're more than happy to work with the, the consumers on that too. So you can't make everybody happy, but hopefully after there's, you know, you have a discussion, you, you get it figured out. And I think we've got a pretty good reputation for taking care of folks if they have an issue. And more often than not, I, I think a lot of it's, Grass and parking lot casting and and snagging and trees and and yanking on things with the way they shouldn't and it's there's a bit of abuse here and there but a lot of folks don't necessarily know but it's it's good to it's good to educate them and say well yeah you shouldn't buy a new line and go cast on cast on the grass with no leader yeah and that you know that customer service side we're, we're talking about it a lot but you know scientific anglers obviously a company that always have gone above and beyond for the consumer um, with the Orvis ownership which is still I guess fairly recent in our memories, um, but has been a while now. De- was that maybe rejuvenated a bit with the Orvis ownership? Because they are the same, aren't they? Like they just, you know, will do anything, bend over backwards for the consumer. Yeah, they for sure are, are very customer centric. Um, the biggest thing with, with them purchasing us was you have a fly, a historic fly fishing company owning a fly line company. So the biggest thing for us has been the resources to invest in material science, in new machinery, that kind of stuff, because we're not having to explain to a company that makes post-it notes why we need $400,000 for this new piece of equipment. Um, the folks at Orvis, I mean, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. I mean, obviously we're building their fly lines as well. Yeah. Um, but being owned by a company that's in the sport is is much better in that aspect and, and just the, the culture as well. So... I think the customer service has always been really good at SA, so I'm not sure that necessarily stepped up, but it, it has helped us in other facets of the business significantly. I think under under other ownership, it could have been the area that might have been dropped, but it hasn't, you know, it's sort of, it, if anything, it's gone from strength to strength. So I, I think, you know, if you were looking at it pre-Orvis ownership and post, you'd be like, oh, thank goodness Orvis came along. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely helped in, in some aspects. I mean, it's, it's allowed us to, I think, uh, in back in some of the 3M days, the eye was taken off the ball a little bit because Scientific English was such a tiny piece of the 3M business. Yeah, um, We're obviously not the size of Orvis, um, and we run completely autonomously up of them, even though they own us. Um, but we've got that backing. It's like, you know, your, your brother's there to, to help you in a scrap if need be. So, um, and it, it's good to have somebody that's like, and he's bigger than you too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he works yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, you know, what's on for the, the rest of your trip, mate, you're going to travel the, the East coast, eh? or what's, what's happening this trip? So this trips it's uh, this is just a two week trip. I, I just spent Three weeks in New Zealand, was home for about three weeks and then left. And you've got a bit one. of a story there from New Zealand too. It, it maybe oh. ended on a bit of a, a dour night. What uh, yeah, that what was, transpired? That was it was a great Lanko trip. Um, <laughs> the last three days I spent with a, a good buddy of mine um, fishing before I came home. And the last day we were there, um, it was we were fishing out of a boat. They had had like a half meter of rain in less than a week. So the oh, rivers wow. were massive. Of course, when does this happen? Happens right before opener. <laughs> so most of the rivers were pretty blown out, and we had kind of exhausted our, our opportunities on where we could fish. And we went to a, a kind of an alpine lake there and took us a little while to get the fish figured out. 
I've got some Stillwater streamers that I do pretty well in the States on and uh, tied one of those on and proceeded to catch like a 26-inch rainbow and then a 31-inch rainbow, then a 34-inch rainbow. And I think the last fish was like 37 or 38 inches. It was massive, absolutely massive Stillwater wow. fish. So while we were taking pictures of that fish, I was sitting in the bottom of the boat leaning over the side. My buddy was up front, and he was leaning way out over the same side. Now, we had both leaned on the same side of the boat at one point, but I had not been at the back. Um, and one thing led to another, and a little bit of water started coming over the transom on the rear of the boat. And within three seconds, the boat stood on its end and flipped over, and we're in the water. Um, I had just taken my life jacket off to take my rain jacket off and hadn't had a chance to put it back on. I managed to grab it before the boat flipped, but I got tangled up uh, in something in the back of the boat, which caught on my waders and it pulled me under. And I wasn't quite able to get to the surface until I tore my waders and got fly line wrapped around my feet, wasn't able to swim. And it was uh, a very hairy experience. Um, Only boat there. Um, We only had about five hours, six hours before dark. It was going to get to freezing that night. The water was only like maybe eight degrees Celsius to begin with. Uh, had to swim to shore both of us made it to get to shore got the boat kind of to shore and then we had to hike out the hike out included two swims across sections of the lake so now we're having to get back in the water with waders and everything else on and swim and the last swim I I think if I had to swim another 15 or 20 meters I'm honestly not sure if I would have if I would have made it so uh, both of us were very lucky we got out of it okay I got a little bit of water in a lung it took about three weeks just before this trip to where I started to kind of feel 100 percent but yeah. Uh, we lost a lot of gear, but none of that matters. I and mean, we, we the both material things just do not matter. We made that it back to the truck. Yeah, but, I mean, we collapsed in the parking lot. Neither one of us had any energy left in us, but um, we were both thankful to be alive. So yeah, you know, and it's probably you know I don't want to obviously end this podcast on such a somber note, but safety is paramount out there, isn't it? You know, and to always be aware, and you know, we let we wear life jackets in boats for a reason, and you know, don't uh, don't just take that stuff for granted. I guess be prepared for anything. For sure. I mean, I, I've worked on the water for forty plus years, so I've I've seen about everything. I've unfortunately been involved in a couple of recoveries um, of people that had passed away on the water, and that was just a really strong reminder of things can be amazing. I mean, I'm holding a giant rainbow that's almost a meter long. And then literally in three seconds, it's completely different. And, you know, there's a chance that we're not going to survive. And so it's important to, to have your head on straight and know what you need to do and, and not panic. I mean, if we'd have panicked, it would have been, been much worse than it was. But, you know, we made it out. Insurance claims, a little bit of new gear, <laughs> learned a little bit more. So, and yeah. a story to tell. I told I told Alex he could sell the rights to the made-for-TV movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, I guess you know the, the silver lining is that the fishing was bloody good that morning. Oh, it was it was really good <laughs> until it really wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, mate, it's um it's so good to see you here. And look, we really appreciate the visit. And um, I better get you back downstairs so that you can spend a bit of time with the customers that have made the effort to come in and have a sausage and, and chat to the man himself, Jeff Pierce. Um, but, yeah, look, I hope the, the rest of your tour goes well. Uh, if there is, uh, you know, obviously everyone's sort of advertising your visit and if, if, if listeners have the opportunity to get along and, and meet Jeff and, and cast the, the lines that he's brought along, um, please do. You will not be disappointed. But, mate, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cheers.